Well, hello and welcome everybody to episode 3 of Yes OBS, where everything is true except the parts that aren't. Now, I'm not quite sure what the scores are at the minute, Paul, and I don't even know if we're putting these episodes in any sort of order where we can keep a score. Yeah, I know. Uh, I don't think I've done very well. But yeah. of course, if we put this in at like number four, yeah, true. people are going to get confused. I think we should post them in an order that makes me look good. <laughs> so we'll not post anything ever then. <laughs> <laughs> Start with the jokes today. So, what sort of facts you got for me today, Paul? Right, okay. I'm starting you off with a musical one. Ooh. Okay, because you know I, I like my music, my classical music. Ah, that's true. Um, okay, so Rachmaninoff, mm-hmm. classical Russian composer, mm-hmm. was allergic to ivory piano keys. <laughs> Okay, I'm skeptical. Okay. I'm straight out the gate on this. Apparently, one. this is quite common. There's a, apparently there is a protein in ivory um, that reacts to perspiration, human perspiration, mm-hmm. in the same way that some people are, sort of react with linen and cotton and stuff. Mm-hmm. If you've got bed sheets that are made out of certain things, it's happened to my dad once. Uh, really? He bought some new bed sheets and they didn't wash them first. Mm-hmm. And when he woke up the next day, his ears had all swelled up. <laughs> But um, yeah, so apparently, it's, <laughs> but that, <laughs> uh, so anyway, back to Rachmaninoff. So apparently, this is quite common. Um, Leonard Bernstein also suffered from it, as did Clara Schumann, who is Robert Schumann's wife, and was also a very good pianist and composer in her own right. She wrote in a journal in 1854 that they'd got a new piano at their house in Dusseldorf. And after she played it for a few days, she realized that the skin on her fingertips was becoming rather tender. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had a blister on the side of two of her fingers. And so she went to a local herbalist and was given, <laughs> given a, an ointment. See, you see there, a local, I just, I'm starting to be more, even more skeptical now. Do a I? local herbalist. Well, whoever, some sort of local remedy, a physician of some description. Um, yeah, and got an ointment and it soothed the skin on her fingers. And they think that she was probably allergic to whatever the piano was made of. But <clears throat> back to Rachmaninoff, which mm-hmm. is the whole crux of my story. So sort of born in 1873, um, became very famous as a composer and a performer very, very quickly. He moved to Germany and then he moved to the United States mm-hmm. in 1917. Eventually became an American citizen. But yeah, he also wrote in his journals that he used to get irritation on his skin when he was studying at the Moscow Conservatory, 1890s-ish. Mm-hmm. And they had very massive old school pianos with big ivory keys and stuff. Mm-hmm. They think the one that he had when he was at home and the one that he eventually started performing with when he, when he moved to the States uh, was just wooden keys, veneered keys. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, I was about to ask that actually, what other materials do you make? Just kind of wooden and veneered ones, mm-hmm. kind of what they used to be before kind of ivory and bone became <clears throat> de rigueur in the 19th century. But uh, so, yeah, he noticed that when he went to the conservatory and started playing a different piano, and then when he left, the irritation went away. Mm-hmm. Apart from, and this is the crux of this whole story, when he gave his first performance in the US, which was in uh, Massachusetts in 1909, mm-hmm. uh, he was very famous by then. He was a really famous composer by then, very famous uh, performer. And so he kind of, we kind of call it a rider now, but it was a sort of, I'm about to perform in America. This Mm. is my request Mm. of the venue that I'm going to. And he requested that the piano doesn't have ivory keys. Mm. And it was mistranslated or misinterpreted at at the other end. And so the concert hall that he played at went absolutely out of their way (laughs) to find a piano that had ivory (laughs) keys. Um, And it was just in a small town called Northampton, oddly enough, in in Massachusetts. 
and they had to have a proper piano shifted from uh, just from upstate New York really? all the way to Massachusetts just for him to perform on. And it wasn't what he wanted. <laughs> and he eventually <laughs> ended up just playing it on like a, a little upright piano that they already mm. had at the venue. Uh, but he gave the concert and uh, yeah, the irritation went away. How famous was he by that point when he made it to America? Like it's... A very, very famous in Europe. And mm. at that time, it was it was after the Russian Revolution, he got very kind of tired with what was happening in Russia and Europe. He, mm. he moved to Germany before he moved to the States and was kind of famous as a performer and as a composer. Mm. A kind of second piano concerto was already out, which was one of his big, big successes. And he toured with that and performed it himself. Mm. Uh, so he was sort of already very well established. Mm. So he's kind of making a name for himself, but eventually broke it in the States, as they okay, say. Okay, but he kind of, when he went to the States, he wasn't that well known. He was playing like small towns and stuff. N- not over there, yeah. He eventually obviously became really, really famous, toured mm. all over the States. And kind of stopped composing <clears throat> toured so much in, mm. in the 1920s. He sort of didn't have as much time to compose. So his creative output kind of tails off. Okay, this is really detailed. Like uh, either mm-hmm. either you just know a lot about Rachmaninoff. I'm a big Rachmaninoff, and you're fan. just kind of trying to twist things around. Rachmaninoff's. And... Ha- this is a bonus fact. <laughs> um, a normal piano player maybe can stretch like nine, ten keys on a piano. Mm. How many do you reckon Rachmaninoff could stretch? Twenty-eight. <laughs> <laughs> maybe with both hands. With one hand, you could get fifteen. Really? Yeah. That's a that's a that's massive a big hand, hand he's got there. Yeah. Yeah. You know what to say about big hands? Loud applause. <laughs> Good piano players, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so this allergy, it's not is it's kind of anything bone based. It's not just ivory. Yes, I'm guessing it must be. Yeah, mm. although uh, ivory is technically teeth, so, so it's not the same as bone. It'll mm. be dentin. So the allergic reaction, it just when they were when he was playing, it would just kind of irritate the part, irritate his, his fingertips, his, his hands that were in contact with the. The keyboard. It wouldn't send anyone to anaphylactic shock or anything. I wouldn't have thought so, not unless you played (laughs) constantly for about 50 days. (laughs) Fairly small scale irritation, I think. Right. So it's not sort of, I mean, I'm sure there are people who are very, very reactive to it. Mm. But um, yeah, it was more just a sort of skin irritation. And as soon as he stopped using the the ivory keys at the conservatory, then it went away. Now you see, I'm torn on this one, Mm because I think I'm leaning towards this is actually true. Mm-hmm. Because it sounds sounds plausible. You know mm-hmm. a lot about Rachmaninoff. I love Rachmaninoff. I think it might be oh an easy fact I can pick up. Mm-hmm. That'd be a nice one, quick one to write down. I know mm-hmm. a lot already, but I've never heard of this irritation to ivory before. Not that I like to research <laughs> allergies. It's not one of your niches. <laughs> well, what what irritation <laughs> will I research today? <laughs> what's your what's your favourite animal related <laughs> allergy? <laughs> oh, I love bee stings. <laughs> Okay, I don't think there's any other questions I can ask around mm-hmm. this one. I've been trying to gauge your reaction through this as well. Like, if, I think I'm, I'm feel I'm starting to read your facial tics a bit better. Now. I'm trying to keep this poker face going, but I have absolutely uh, no poker face at all. I think, just given the volume of research mm-hmm. that's been done, going to say this. Oh, then your face though—it's telling me it's alive. What? <laughs> I, I literally just looked down at my notebook to see if I'd written anything no, else down okay, of any I'm, interest. I'm going to go with the gut and right. say it's true. You saying it's true? Yes. I made all of that up. <laughs> you did this to me with that cat in the hat thing. Oh, that yeah. Tea. Absolutely. Oh. No, that was all complete rubbish. I, I mean, don't think people are allergic to ivory. I, sh- I should have trusted my other gut yeah. that was looking at your facial reaction there. He does have enormous hands. Mm. That's true. And Clara Schumann lived in Dusseldorf, but she wasn't allergic to ivory either. <sighs> Is it even a thing? I don't know. If you just... I don't know. I just, I like Rachmaninoff and I decided to make I something should, I about him. I should know better than this. 
What can I say? I think I would have learned. One nil. Should we end the game now so that I win an episode? <laughs> well, thanks everybody for this. And they're tuning in again. Join us next time. <laughs> so for my second fact, we are travelling six and a half thousand miles away to the far east, to the magical land of Japan. Mm-hmm. You're selling this already. That's <laughs> I'm just a true showman. Isn't now, it? you used to live in Japan. I did. Lived so there for three years. This already puts me on the back foot. It does. As you know, I lived in the northeast of Japan in a mm-hmm. town called Sendai. I want to ask you, have you ever heard of the festival of the Steel Phallus, Paul? No. <laughs> Should I? <laughs> well, it's it's quite an interesting festival. Okay. Are we talking steel double E or E-A? As uh, in... ste- <laughs> We're talking steel double E. Okay. So basically, the basis of this festival is... Let me guess. Oh, God. <laughs> is it phalluses? <laughs> it is. It is. It originated in the town of uh, Kawasaki. It's basically, the story comes from, it's a woman had a demon who was living in her, well, you, it, can, you can infer where in the demon... In her special area. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, okay. She was cursed, so every time... You, you reckon? <laughs> so when she got married, um, on the wedding night, when they were trying to consummate the marriage, the demon would bite off the phallus. Okay. And... This happened twice, so she think, right. you'd think she would have learned from the first marriage. You'd think the second husband would have learned from the <laughs> exactly. first Exactly. Uh, you know, I'm not going to marry the woman with a demon living in it. Yes. It's, it's probably not the best thing to do. Okay. But so basically, the, the origin of the festival is the town blacksmith, he said, you know what, I'm going to help you out here. I'm going to make you a steel phallus. Mm-hmm. We're going to use that, and if the demon tries to bite that, it's going to break all of its teeth. Right, okay. So, I like his logic. Exactly. Smart men, blacksmiths. Mm-hmm. That worked. Woman was happy. She'd get married. Blah blah blah. It's all fun and games. Mm-hmm. So now there's like a there's a festival developed around it. Okay. How does the festival take shape? Um. So to well, speak. actually, in fact, I want to tell you how it takes shape in the town near where I used to live. Oh right. Okay. Oh, um, so this is a nationwide festival. In it's kind of it's more specific to Kawasaki, but it's. You brought it to Sendai. <laughs> Thing is, I, I didn't even know anything about the festival before I brought it there. But no, it's kind of, it's, there's different variations of it around okay. the country. Okay. So it's actually not Sendai. It's a prefecture next to Sendai called Yamagata. Okay. It's a very small mountain town called Yamadera. It's actually really beautiful. It looks like beautiful mountain scenery. Fantastic. You're surrounding this in true facts. <laughs> So basically, when the festival starts in Yamadera, the men have to carry these phalluses up the thousand steps to the top of the temple. Okay. And they're also naked at the time. Of course. And it's kind of like a fertility thing. And so their wives or girlfriends are at the top of okay. the mountain. First one, rush up there, they drop these phalluses off. Then they've got to pick up their spouse or girlfriend. And the first one to carry them back to the bottom of the hill, mm-hmm. guaranteed to get pregnant that year. Wow. Okay. That's quite a prize. It is. A guarantee to become pregnant. Yes. Okay. Obviously, because of the fertility side of it. Yeah. Right. Now, this is is awkward Mm. because, as I say, you used to live in Japan. Mm. So you know an awful lot about Japanese culture. And I also know that you have a very twisted sense of humor and could blatantly (laughs) have made this story up. So, just to recap, there was a, the folklore says that there was a woman who had a demon in her. Yes. That would bite off the appendages... Of oh. her potential suitors. <laughs> yes. This happened twice. <laughs> so learning lessons obviously doesn't happen in this town. 
Uh, and the only person who could cure this was a blacksmith who made a, an iron phallus. Yes. Which she placed inside of herself and shattered the demon's teeth. Yes. So the demon's still there. It's just... <laughs> it just doesn't have any teeth. I suppose that's true, actually. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and in honor of this, in various pockets of Japan, mm. naked men run up temple steps yes. holding large metal phalluses they're quite large it's kind of it's an under the arm thing under the arm yes that that if if you think that's quite a large phallus <laughs> then yeah remind me never to go to the gym with you <laughs> and they run up the steps naked holding yes. these metal phalluses yep. drop the phalluses at the shrine pick up their wives slash girlfriends yes and run back down the steps yep carrying them yes on the backs on their backs yes it's like a piggyback okay and the first one to the bottom is guaranteed to get pregnant. Yes. Right. There is so much in this story that mm. ah, I'm kind of thinking that it's true, but you've couched it in so much Japanese culture and mm. name dropped so many places that you've been to mm. that I think you're, you're trying to cover up the fact that you've made up this mm. ludicrous story. A blacksmith and two husbands this happened to? <laughs> What, a, what yeah. an odd detail. What was the second husband doing? Had he not, uh, well, he obviously, he, he didn't know about it. Was he from out of town? <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't marry old uh, demon woman over there. <laughs> okay, I think I'm ready to decide on this. Okay. I don't think there's too much interrogation. I'm going to say that this is, yes, this is true. Sorry, Jones. It's not true. The story is true, though. And there is like a, there is a small festival in Kawasaki, but it's very tame. The whole extra bits around. The, the naked up, men. Yeah, naked men. You've made that up. I've made all of that up. What a sordid imagination <laughs> you have. It was, it was a big lie peppered with tiny truths. That's annoying. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the, <clears throat> a story that I have down here, which I think might... This is literature. Ooh. Well, it's kind of literature, which is sort of playing more into my hands than yours. I was going to say, strong point for you. This yeah, one. okay. Um, the fact is that Mark Twain mm -hmm. invented the bra clasp. Mm. Okay, so Mark Twain. Uh, this is uh, Samuel Clemens, mm -hmm. of course, uh, who wrote Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, and I'm sure lots of other things besides. He also had a cat. <laughs> uh, I'm peppering this with truth. Um, yes, yeah, so he was also an inventor, which mm -hmm. not a lot of people know about. He, he patented three inventions in his lifetime. One of them was a board game, Ooh. which was uh, a sort of trivial pursuit, but only history questions, essentially. Oh, was, that'll do me right up, I like yeah, it. was a trivia game based on history. The other one was a special type of sort of self-adhesive <clears throat> scrapbook that he invented. <laughs> and he also invented... Uh, what he called in his uh, patent application an improvement in adjustable and detachable straps for garments. Ooh, so this is where the uh, the bra strap comes. Yeah, in. this is 1871. It was basically it, he wanted it, he wasn't a fan of braces or suspenders, mm. and so he came up with this, this idea that there would be a detachable fastener mm. um, that you could just sort of button onto any garment. So there would be a, a break at the back of your pantaloons or whatever it was you were wearing and you would put this fastener in and then you could adjust it. So it was basically two pieces of elastic mm -hmm. with some hooks attached by uh, hooks. Okay, I'm just kind of picturing this. Yeah, thing. with a sort of slidable buckle that would pull it closer together or, or move okay. it further apart. And at either end of the pieces of elastic were fasteners mm -hmm. and you would fasten just this little strap 
just this fastener. Oh, it sounds very involved, this one, actually. Onto yeah. other garments. Okay. And basically the design that he came up with <clears throat> um, was the bra clasp. So what was kind of the precursor? How, how, what sort of bras were women wearing before? My knowledge of 1970, 1970s <laughs> bras <laughs> is not perhaps what it should be. Mm. Um, I, I don't know how. I'm guessing buttons were probably involved. Um, but maybe a string. Maybe, yes. Yeah, it was all corsets, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but it, he didn't actually invent the bra. He just invented a clasp that eventually was used in the bra industry. So why haven't we kind of heard about Mark Twain's inventions? Like, you'd think these sort of things would be more publicised. Yeah, well, I'm sure if you're if people who are Mark Twain aficionados would probably know that he was very sort of fertile-minded. But yeah, he only invented three things. He only... <laughs> You can't, just, you can't just introduce... Well, he was quite the inventor. Oh, he only invented three things. <laughs> he was very fertile-minded, but he only registered three patents in his lifetime. So it was a bra clasp, a board game, and... And a self-adhesive scrapbook. Wow, Mark, he really... You know, he pushed the board out. pulling the stops out with these inventions. Yeah, like... yeah. He's no Edison, we'll put it that way. But uh, yeah, yeah. He, he patented these three things. Okay, what year did he do the bra strap? 1871. Mm. He died in, I think, 1910. Mm. When was he born? Um, 18, ooh, I'm not sure, 1830s, 40s, 50s, probably sometime around then. I think mm, he, okay. he died 20th century. I'm sure he died about 1910. Mm. So how old was he when he was inventing this bra <sighs> clasp? We're looking maybe 1871. It's going to be 30s, 40s, 50s, something like that. I'm Why? not sure how old he was when he died. Mm. Why stop there, though? Why like just say, oh, I've done my bra clasp? He had books to write, not bras And he had a cat to look after. What was the name of his cat? I don't know. Ah. But there's a very famous photograph of him with a cat on his shoulders. Okay. Uh, so where was he? Was this on general sale in America? Was it, I, uh, I don't know whether it was ever sort of... Um, I, I don't know whether it was ever kind of put <clears throat> into circulation, but it was certainly patented and he received the, the patent mm. for it. You know, I'm starting to, I'm kind of thinking, sounds plausible. Mm-hmm. Trying to get, I'm trying to read your face now to see what uh, I'm going to hide behind are. the microphone shield. <laughs> ah, this sounds, it's so middle of the road. It sounds really, I think I'm, I'm going to answer, I'm just going to go for it. Okay. I want to say it's true. Sure? Yes. It's completely true. Yes! <laughs> I knew it! I was like, it sounds, ah, it was like, that is just like perfect middle of the road, just where you think, ooh. Absolutely everything was true there, though. The, I mean, he invented a scrapbook that stuck itself, and he invented a history trivia game. How good would Mark Twain's <laughs> history quiz game be? I would love it if it was on sale in Argos <laughs> now. <or something>. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it is. You never know. Those Argos warehouses are big. <laughs> I'm I'm on the ropes again. You are. I don't I'm, like uh, this. I'm going to nearly with this one. Okay. It's, this is about no. a lion that was gifted to one of the former Portuguese governors of Brazil. Okay. Now, a bit of background on this one. Please. Um, as you know, Brazil, um, massive player in the slave trade during the yes. like 1400s to 1800s, thereabouts. Yeah. The slave triangle, I believe it was The slave called. triangle. So mm. Brazil was one of the biggest destinations for slaves. Right. And obviously the Portuguese used to own colonial Brazil. So they had a very strong relationship with the kingdom of Congo, which is in West Africa. Yes. So one of the kings of Congo decided to gift a lion to the governor of Portugal as thanks for saying, you're a great customer. Mm -hmm. We'd like to see more of you. Okay. Here's a treat for you. Here's a, here's a so the king of Congo was sort of supportive of what, what 
they were doing. Yeah, actually, he was king of the Congo. Was one of the biggest slave trading wow, okay. areas in West Africa okay. at the time. So it was part of like say thanks for being such really great slave traders, Portugal. He mm-hmm. really, really helped the guys out here. Mm-hmm. They said, right, we're going to gift you a pet lion that you can take over to Portugal. Okay, keep it in your menagerie. Right. But one step further than that, the governor, Sancho de Faro y Souza, from 1785 to 1787, he was the governor, so a very right. short time. Okay. And he said, you know what, it's not enough that I have a lion. The people of the town must see this. Salvador, by the way, which is the colonial capital of uh, Brazil, said, I need to have, we need to find a way we can get this lion out onto the streets mm-hmm. so I can show the townspeople, like, I'm, okay. the, I'm the big man. This is in Brazil? This is in Brazil. Right, okay. In Salvador. So his plan was he would drug this lion up on so much opium. Okay. So he was able... I like this guy already. <laughs> He's a, he's a real stellar guy. <laughs> I'm a slave trading lion drugger. <laughs> what more could you want? Uh-huh. So he would have it so hepped up on opium, uh-huh. he was able to kind of shackle the two front legs and shackle the two back legs together. So he was able to have it kind of shuffle around the streets. Right, okay. With so it's hobbled. Hobbled around. So right, like, okay. And people are like, hey, that guy's got a lion over there. Right, okay. And he would just like to kind of walk it around. Oh, we called the lion Jonas as well, by the way. Okay. Yeah, so he was really interested in building up a big menagerie in Salvador. On the back of that, he was kind of contacting other leaders for other animals. He also requested a polar bear from the king of Norway. Mm-hmm. And he had that request ignored by the king. That's unsurprising. He was saying, I'm not sending you a polar bear. Okay. You've got a lion. It didn't live very long, the lion. But probably because it was doped up off its eyeballs. <laughs> we don't know if he was enjoying himself, though. We do know. Uh, yeah, so that's basically it. So, the story of the lion owned by the former governor of Portugal. Okay. Not Portugal, Brazil. Of Brazil, okay. So, the king of Congo. Yes. Do you have his name? His name? Um, I have the Portuguese name that the Portuguese gave him. They called him Alfonso V. Obviously, that wasn't his real name. Right, yes. Um, it wasn't uh, his... I'm not even going to try and pronounce his real name. No, that's, well, that's probably for the best. So Okay, so Alfonso of the Congo. Yes. Um, I didn't realise that they were so supportive of the slave trade. I, I... Well, it, it depended on where you went in West Africa. Right. Like some people made a lot of money out of it. I thought they made all their money from Umbongo. <laughs> uh, okay, so he's involved in this, mm. and he's so thankful for all the money that mm. selling his own people to the Portuguese I brings. I don't think it was his own people. I think... Oh, that would explain it. Uh, King of the Congo, he would... I think he was quite warlike. He would... Right, so... It was from be, other wars. Yeah. So it was other other kingdoms. He would take prison, prisons of war and say, right, they're not my people, so... Right, have them. ship right, off, okay. make some money. That would make sense. Okay. <clears throat> so it, he makes an awful lot of money by dealing with the Portuguese. The Portuguese. Yeah. Uh, and shipping these poor people off to Brazil, mm-hmm. that he gives the governor of Portugal a lion. Yes. That that the governor keeps doped up. Yes. Okay. For the sole purpose that he can show off his status by right. walking it around the streets. Right. Of Salvador. Yes. Okay. And the lion didn't last very long. It didn't. It didn't say like how long it lasted, but it didn't survive the governorship, which was only two years anyway. Right. Okay. And it was a male <clears throat> lion. Yes. Right. Called, called, you, called Jonas. Jonas. This sounds very, very plausible. Mm. A, these seem like the kinds of characters that could be very easily bought with gifts. I'm not sure about the idea of him contacting other kings for mm. other animals. I only know of the time he... I don't know if it was like a thing. Like, you know, he, he contacted the king of Norway. And I don't know if, right. I don't know if he contacted anyone else after that. I know that the king of Norway, or a king of Norway, gave one of our kings, a polar bear, and it used to live at the Tower of mm. London and swim in the Thames and things. Mm. 
So there is a sort of precedent for this sort mm. of stuff. I can't remember which king that was now. It was one of the Edwards, I think. So yeah, there is a precedent for this. This does sound very plausible. Mm. And the sort of colonialists were very sort of status-driven. And mm. yeah, I can imagine wandering a doped-up lion around the streets <laughs> would do wonders for your street cred. It's on my bucket list. Colonial Salvador. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm, I'm going to say this is true. True? Yeah, I think... I think there was a doped-up lion in shackles being walked around colonial Brazil. Now I've said it that way, I think it's false. But I'm going to stick with my guns. <laughs> and I'm going to say it's true. It's a lie. Oh! You know, when you mentioned that polar bear, like, I was like, oh, God. Because that's the fact I was originally going to use. Oh, right, the okay. The one. Yeah. But I thought I'd just kind of drop it in there. <sighs> Actually, I'm glad I didn't use the third. I was going to say he, he got a gorilla called Mario. <laughs> right, I would have, yeah. If would, you'd said that, that would have been one step. I would have laughed you out of the room if you'd said that. <laughs> Why call it Mario? What goes on in your I brain? <laughs> I thought because, oh, it's, oh, that's a ridiculous name. Who would call a gorilla Mario? True. But it's a popular Mediterranean name. <sighs> I know. I thought I had you there. I thought that sounded really true. Oh, no. Okay, okay. So I need to pull this back. Three, one. The now, best four. I can do is a draw. Uh, I'm, I'm ditching history, really, and mm. animals and things, and we're going into sport. Oh, God. Because I know it, it's a subject dear to both our hearts. <laughs> go, go, Team Blue. <laughs> we know so much about sport, but it's kind of historical sport. Mm. Um, the, the fact is that at the 1896 Olympics, which was the first of the sort of modern yes. Olympiad, it, it held in Athens, mm -hmm. there was a swimming event that was only open for members of the Greek Navy. <laughs> Do go on, Paul. Okay. I, can't, I can't wait to hear so, more about this one. Uh, yeah, so the 1896 Olympics, in fact about that, uh, there was only 11 countries took part, uh, including uh, Britain and America. Australia, before it was unified, so it was sort of registered technically as a kind of collection of colonies. I don't mm. think it was technically an independent I remember what country. what they used to then. call it. No, because it was a commonwealth or something. Something like that. Yeah. But they're now the medals that they won then were registered as Australian. Mm. Uh, there was only men allowed to take part. Mm -hmm. uh, only amateurs allowed to take part. As is still, I think, technically the rule in the Olympics. Yeah, you don't see like the football teams. You don't see yeah, like, professional footballers. I understand yeah. how it works. Um, and there was only 10 sports the 43 events overall, but it was only 10 sports. They had a um, boat race um, and everyone travelled there to take part and then the weather was really bad, so they cancelled it and they mm. didn't hold it again. <laughs> so it seems a slightly shambolic <laughs> event. Like, ah, ah, screw it. Yeah, there's some other facts here. Um, there was uh, a weightlifting competition where you were only allowed to lift the weight with one arm mm -hmm. and it was won by a Scotsman named Launston Elliot. And rope climbing was an event. <laughs> now they should bring that back. I saw a picture of this while I was researching the 1896 Olympics and it was kind of, it looks kind of like, you know, the Space Needle in Seattle. It's kind mm. of like a small version of that with a rope hanging from it and this rope looks about 40 foot long and there's a guy right at the top of it. No one is watching this <laughs> event and this is with no safety at all but it was literally just <laughs> climb this rope and come back down again. So, oh, there was such simpler times yeah, yeah, in the 1800s. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so back to the back to the main fact. There was four swim, swimming events mm. at the Athens Games. There was the 100-meter freestyle, 500-meter freestyle, 1,200-meter freestyle, and the 100-meter freestyle only open for Greek sailors. 
Why just Greek sailors? Now, this is a good point because it kind of goes against the sort of Olympic ethos that mm. everybody can take part. So this is kind of like sort of a discriminatory race, I guess, that, that, that only these people can take part in it. But the early Olympic Games were really different from what we kind of think that they are now. Mm. The plan was at one point that they would always be held in Athens. Mm, um, so it was sort of all kind of, we're going to keep <clears throat> hold of this because it's part of our history. But there was a debate about this and it was eventually decided that it would tour the world and there'd be a different host country every time. Mm. So it was, it seems very strange looking back now that they would have an event like this. But yeah, it was a little bit more closed minded at the mm. time. Um, but 11 people who are in the Greek <laughs> Navy registered <laughs> registered to take part in this race. That only, wasn't the entire Greek Navy. Was no, it, so. but only three of them turned up and took part. <laughs> the really annoying thing is, though, that at the first Olympic Games, um, they gave prizes for first and second and nothing for third. Really? So there was only three competitors. You think you'd guarantee the medal, but the guy who came third didn't win anything. Uh, there was no gold medals. It was silver for first and copper really? for second. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was won by a person called Ioannis Malokinis or Malokinis or something like that uh, in a time of 220.4 to swim 100 meters, which isn't all that impressive. Because I have no idea if that's good or not, Well, I don't um, know anything about swimming. The person who won the normal 100 meter freestyle did it nearly a minute quicker than that. <laughs> so, doesn't say much for the Greek Navy. It does doesn't it? say much at all, no. Uh, the person who won it was a Hungarian swimmer who did it in 122.2. Um, so yeah, there was a minute, <laughs> a minute discrepancy between these two events. Maybe the idea of only opening it to a small niche part of the population <laughs> wasn't such a good idea. Um, Were there uh, many viewers for this event? I don't well? know. Judging by who t who viewed the rope climbing, <laughs> it doesn't I thought seem that like... was going to be the big ticket event. <laughs> it doesn't seem like probably many people watched. Uh, all the swimming events were held in the sea. Uh... There was no swimming. I think pool, I might have heard something um, along those lines involved. Before. And oddly enough, it was never held again <laughs> as an event. When the Olympics started to tour the world, they didn't keep an event that was only open to the Greek Navy <laughs> as part of the roster of events. But yeah, so this, this race was only open for sailors registered to the Greek Royal Navy. So why specifically just the Greek Navy at the beginning? Was it just because it's a prestige thing? I'm, I'm guessing so. And plus it was sort of uh, vaguely sort of maritime themed that they were mm. holding it in the sea and it was held in Greece and the, these people were the sort of pride of the of the Greek armed forces, these, I guess. These three men who turned yes, up. These three, <laughs> these three people out of the 11 who were interested, <laughs> who turned up on the day. It's odd that it does seem so sort of exclusionist mm. that, that there would be an event for this. But um, yeah, at the time, it wouldn't have seemed quite so strange. Mm. I honestly, I want to hear more about the rope climbing. But anyway, I'm going to move on to... Uh, you should look at this picture. I'm, I'm definitely, that's definitely getting Googled. There's sort of this. like 10 people standing sort of at the ground wearing like black Victorian clothes. Just wondering what the hell's going yeah, on. Yeah, kind of like... wondering what they're looking at. <clears throat> okay. Ah, something... I don't know what it is. It's leaning me towards a lie on this one. Mm -hmm. It's because there's lots of little niche details in there. Mm -hmm. Like... Oh, there was 11 applied, three turned up, mm -hmm. you've got the name, mm -hmm. you've got the time. Yep. I think you might have... It would take me about two minutes 20 to work up the courage to get in the sea. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind swim 100 meters. I'd, I'd still be in bed at two minutes 20. Yeah, okay. true. But I think you might have got... That's the real winning time is that one minute 10 from, that mm -hmm. other, from the other swimming event. And mm -hmm. I think you've just kind of added another minute... Right, okay. On at the end for this Greek guy. Okay. To kind of make it seem plausible, but yeah. I can see where you're coming from, though, because first Olympics in a couple of thousand years or whatever, mm. Greeks. But why just the swimming event, though? Why not, like, Greeks only, like, wrestling or running or something? Or... I don't know. I don't know. 
maybe the navy had some sort of monopoly on <laughs> swimming events. Okay, then I'm de- I'm I'm gonna gonna go with me gut. Okay, I'm gonna say this is a lie. You saying I made that up? Yep. It's completely true. No, it's completely it's true. Nuts. Yeah, completely true. Why? Why everything, did you just have everything there was true. There was only eleven people took part uh, registered to take part, and only three <laughs> of them turned up. <laughs> it's, it's the the first Olympics just seems so ridiculous. Yeah, the, the, see, I, the, like we could have ten episodes on what happened in the early days of the Olympic Games. Yeah. I was reading about that strongman competition. And I think it was this the same guy, this Launston Elliott mm. bloke. He went on, I, th- I think it was him, or it might have been the person who beat him in a separate event. I can't remember now. Went on to win a gold medal in the architecture competition held at the... Architecture? Exactly, what? held at the Olympics later what? on. There used to be like an artistic side of it. <laughs> <laughs> this Launston Elliott was the first British person to win an Olympic gold. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it's all completely true. Yeah, men only. Um, there was no gold medals. No one won anything if you're in third. Yeah, it was all completely true. That's a really good fact. I like that one. The Greek Navy having their own Olympic race and being not particularly good at it. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I pulled a point back. It's so 3-2 now. Yeah, I, right. This one. is going to be a decider. Here we go. Okay. I'm going to get some like, really dramatic music for this bit. <laughs> or I might not put any music in at all. <laughs> okay, on to the last one. So, Paul. Okay, so I, need, I need to get this point. You do. Mm-hmm. I feel I'm feeling some slight pressure off, mm-hmm. just because worst we can do is a draw. Yeah. But the last fact, and to tell the story of a man who lived in a volcano for four days in 1995. Lived in a volcano. Yes. But in well, a volcano. It's not not like sitting on the lava. Or anything. Yes. He's not just chilling down. Okay. There. Okay. It was the Porak volcano in Azerbaijan. Right. Also known as Aksar Baksar. What's wrong with your back? <laughs> Axar Baxar. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Imagine if I just disappeared when I Axar <laughs> <Aksar> Baxar. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it was basically not long after the fall of the Soviet Union. So volcanologists from the West were keen to get in okay. and check out some fresh new volcanoes. Okay. So in this case, it was volcanologist Robert Yonover. While he was investigating, he was trying to kind of repel down the side of the crater to get like on to... the inside of the crater yeah so he was repelling down okay because he was wanting to take some rock samples from below get some igneous rock samples right but the ropes broke he slipped and he was stranded on a ledge about 100 feet down from the top of the crater okay and he, was, he was by himself because he was very experienced and the team wasn't expecting him back to base camp for at least three or four days. So okay. that's why he was left there for four days. Right, okay. So after the ropes broke, mm-hmm. he found himself on a ledge. And he was very narrow ledge, he had to survive on. Mm-hmm. But the interesting part of this fact is, it was his time living in a volcano that inspired him to invent a torch that could be powered partially by the heat from a human hand. Okay, because right, okay, he, this is taking an odd twist. Because while he was there... Didn't have a lot to do other mm-hmm. than think about life, mm-hmm. where he's going. But how, he wrote... <laughs> how he'd ruined things <laughs> with the choices he'd made, <laughs> the strength of his ropes. But the good thing you noticed, a lot of heat coming from the volcano, like all the metal parts of his clothes, like belt buckle, yes. um, shoelace clips and all that sort of stuff. It was always warm. 
to the touch. So he thought to himself, a constant heat source is going to give you a constant source of power, right? Yes. So he thought, if I can transfer that into, to create a torch or like a flashlight, gripping it tightly with human heat, right? I can power in emergencies. Obviously, this isn't going to shine bright beaming lights down the, ro- yes. down the road or anything. Right. But it was enough for emergencies that once he got out of the volcano, he was able to work on this torch. And it shows a very, very dim light, but it's enough for you to see small obstacles in front of you so you only use the emergencies it has a battery on it as well okay but so this would be sort of good for like climbers and <clears throat> exactly so if you're, if you're stuck at night because he was terrified every night when he went to bed he couldn't see um so he thought right go to bed. He, he actually went on to invent quite a few other things as well um, stronger ropes <laughs> <laughs> then he became a survivalist after that just kind of showed him yeah it can be done because he had his basic rations in a bottle of water down there what's the survivalist is that like if someone well, the bear grill pre- bear grills type oh like right how to, okay. how to survive right but obviously when they when he didn't come back after those like three four days the team said all right he's fallen in the volcano, <laughs> he's fallen in the volcano. we'll go home <laughs> he's a lost cause the, sa- <laughs> the sacrifice is complete <laughs> the harvest axel will be-, <laughs> will be happy for another hundred years <laughs> the harvest will be bountiful this year <laughs> So presumably they went up to look for him yes, and, uh, and rescued him. Load a new rope down, pulled him out. Right, okay. Right. <clears throat> now, this is interesting. So um, it's very plausible that this would have happened. Mm. You've set it up with a nice story about how it would be a former Soviet Union and how mm. it would be opened up to the West and blah, blah, blah. He, he's a very experienced explorer. Yeah. So uh, that's why he went off on his own. Logistics. Yeah, he's, he's, he's been doing this for, for decades. And then to come up with inventing a torch... Well, he was—he's he, invented a few other things as well. Um, Give me some of the other things he's invented. An emergency pocket water desalinator. So if you buy seawater, right? Oh, right. Okay, so it's like one of those water de- bottles. Yeah, water bottles desalinates because right. he's—he's always—he's always off on these treks and adventures. So he's right. always every trip this guy goes on. What's his name? Uh, Robert Yonover. Yeah. Right. Okay. A torch powered by the heat of a human hand. That see that makes sense. I think that mm. even if this is all complete rubbish, I think that's true mm. that someone's invented that because that does kind of make some sense. The fact that you would think to invent that while he's stranded on the ledge in a volcano. Mm. Now, ropes breaking. Mm. That seems a bit strange. It was less the rope and more how it was kind of secured into the top uh, of the Right, crater. okay, so, so the rope didn't snap. Didn't snap. It was it, the it, sort uh, of support the, gave The secure way. snaps came loose. Right. So he was kind of scrabbling, scrambling right, down into, the, into the volcano. Mm. Okay, that would have been terrifying if this story I'd is true. So. That's like presumably this ledge is like an iron board to the size. <laughs> yeah, about thing. that, it was just narrow enough from the lie on. Wow. Okay. Good grief! Just as well he doesn't roll over when he's asleep. <laughs> um, <the> bad dream. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! I dreamt I was in a volcano. Oh my god! <laughs> right. Um, my gut is. As soon as you said that someone lived inside a volcano, mm. I thought like there'll be some sort of experiment gone on or something. But the fact that it's sort of been couched as a as an accident kind of it kind of seems like it could be true. I think. And then you've added this thing about the torch. Yeah, I think that's true. Mm. Whatever happens with the part of the volcano, I think it's true that someone who was in some sort of perilous situation invented this torch. But I think I kind of inclined to think the whole thing's true. Mm. But then I know what you're like, and you've probably made this all up. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with my gut. I'm gonna say that this, yes, this is, this is true. This guy survived four, four days, three mm. nights uh, in, four, yeah. inside a volcano. Mm. See, again, now I've put it that way, it sounds complete rubbish. <laughs> but no, I'm gonna stick with it. I'm gonna say that it's true. The answer is 
It's a lie. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> You're right, though. The, the, you you should have stuck with that first good. Like, that torch does exist. Right. And he didn't invent it. Like, oh. and, uh, Did you even, does, does this guy even exist? He exists. He does. Right. He does he's never fallen in a volcano no. before. But he Is did. he even a volcanologist? Uh, I think, among other things, like he's, just, he's a general just adventurer guy. He likes <sighs> to go off places. So this, this has never happened to anyone? Nope. You've made all of this up? He never fell in the Porak. Volcano. Does the volcano Axar exist? The, the volcano exists. Is the name Axar Baxar? It true? is Axar Baxar. Which I was literally googling funny names for volcanoes. <laughs> <laughs> Built the story around it. You're going to get some funny requests on Amazon now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Absolutely played. Yeah. Four oh. <sighs> two. Oh. Oh, well, well done. There's some good facts there, even though you made them all up. Thank you very much, Paul. That was a. A good one, is he? Yeah. There's interesting stuff there. I'm I love gonna the Olympic stories. I'm yeah. going to definitely read into more of that one. I'm going to go and find out more about how to climb a rope. <laughs> or how to win podcast quizzes. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's true. Ooh. That's true. Oh, well, well done, Tony. Thank you very much. Anyway, thanks very much, everyone. See you next time.